So if many of you were like me, you grew up believing that Jesus was meek and mild, kind, and always warm. He is anything but that in today's reading from Matthew, which opens with this polemic he has against the Pharisees, who were religious leaders of his day. Jesus came from Galilee to the north, the north of Jerusalem. He was viewed probably by the locals in Jerusalem as a bit of a country bumpkin, an outsider. But Jesus' tradition as a Jew was probably older and actually more conservative than that of the Pharisees. They were the innovators of their day. And they believed that by promulgating some of the old practices around the Mosaic Law, they would bring the people back to a life of discipline and faith. They are, incidentally, we believe, the forerunners of what would later become the rabbinical tradition, which has become the center of Judaism as we have it today. That Jesus is in direct conflict with them is unsettling enough. But he is simply speaking out of the place from which he came, Galilee. His world is like our world, filled with what we might call identity politics. And you thought Americans invented that, right? The world of Jesus' time is like ours in that it's filled with factions and groups that stake out positions and carve out differences and create breaches in relationship and in community. And so that gap between Jesus and the Pharisees is pretty wide But then there is a deeper chasm. In fact, you could call it the Grand Canyon of breaches in Jesus' world, and that is between the Jews and the Canaanites. We can only imagine that Jesus grew up in Nazareth hearing the old stories from Scripture about how the people of the Exodus came into the Promised Land and drove out the Canaanites, the pagans, the unfaithful ones. Drove them out and took the land from them. And there's a whole polemic in the tradition and the culture built up around that. The irony is that the archaeological record doesn't show that. There was a fascinating dig not so many years ago in Israel where they discovered the first physical evidence that there was a king named David who ruled somewhere around 1,000 B.C. in Israel. But what they also discovered were households filled with little gods from the same period. In other words, the holdover from the older Canaanite religions 
was still very present in the households of the Israelites as late as King David's time. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that the authors of Scripture were deep into polemic. They wanted to drive that away completely. So they worked very hard to cast the Canaanites in as ugly as terms as they possibly could. I think it's fair to say that we are looking in this passage at some early first century racism. And it runs deep. The tapes are old. And they play even for Jesus because he was raised with them. They are the default position for any faithful Jew. These breaches in the human family are what mark each of our readings today. Because the other breach that we hear about comes right out of the old tradition, the ancient primordial myth for the people of Israel, the story of Joseph. And over the past several Sundays, we've had this kind of drop-the-needle approach to these narratives. If you remember from last week, Joseph goes to find his brothers, and by this time they are so upset with him, they throw him into a pit. Joseph is not always best at his own PR because Joseph is the favorite of his fathers. And like his father Jacob, Joseph has dreams. When Joseph has dreams, he dreams about being basically the center of the universe and all his older brothers bowing down before him. And then he doesn't think before he opens his mouth and tells them that. So if that wasn't bad enough, their father favors him by giving him this beautiful coat that he wears. So by the time he catches up with them when they're tending the flocks, they have hatched a plan to kill him. It's like the rest of Genesis. It's all in the family. And with brothers like this, who needs enemies, right? But Reuben manages to prevail upon them not to kill him, but rather to throw him in a pit and abandon him. And then when they see Ishmaelites coming along, slave traders, they decide to go ahead and sell him into slavery into Egypt. And then they take the beautiful coat that Jacob has made for Joseph. They dip it in goat's blood, if memory serves, and they take it back to Jacob and say, your son, Joseph, has been taken by the wild animals and is dead. If you go back to Genesis and read what happens next, you learn that Joseph makes it to Egypt, and through a series of adventures and misadventures, he rises up in Egyptian society until he is the only person in all of Egypt who can interpret one of Pharaoh's dreams. And the dream is about a coming famine. There will be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And Pharaoh is so moved by this interpretation that he puts Joseph in charge of the whole economy and 
everything to prepare for the coming famine, which Joseph does with great skill. And so when the famine arrives, Egypt is well prepared, but the surrounding lands are not. And then one day, Joseph finds his brothers standing on his doorstep wanting help with the famine. Joseph recognizes them. But as you can imagine, they have long left him for dead. They don't see him. They only see a powerful ruler in Egypt who might be able to help them. Now, Joseph is his father's son. He is a trickster. And so he spends the next chapter or so playing with his brothers because they don't know who he is. And he slips money into their bags at one point, and they are about halfway back home, and they discover this money in their bags, and they're frightened because they think maybe he will accuse them of stealing from his household. And they come back, tail between their legs, and then he has them go and get their youngest brother, Jacob's newest favorite, and bring him to Joseph, and they are scared to death that that will not only kill their father, but maybe Joseph has designs to kill their youngest brother as well. Then we open today's story where Joseph has stretched the game out about as far as he can. His heart is breaking, and at last he discloses himself to his brothers. And in a passage that is only paralleled by the reconciliation between Jacob and Esau, if you remember that story, Joseph is reconciled with his brothers. He forgives them for leaving him for dead and selling him into slavery. Can you imagine that? Joseph steps into the breach so that there may be healing in his family. And that is what we are meant to hear, that faith is lived in the breach in the human family, in those breaks and places where there has been nothing but strife and enmity and hatred. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, is writing into the breach and calling his brothers and sisters, Jewish Christians in Rome, to step into the breach, a long-standing breach between the Jews and the Gentiles, those inside and those outside. Paul, in addition, to really planting the foundation of Christian theology, almost making it up out of whole cloth, by the way, which makes Romans one of his most brilliant letters, is also addressing this old breach for his brothers and sisters and asking, asking the Jewish Christian community to see the faith in the Gentile other and to step forward and embrace that. But no one shows us faith in the breach more vividly than the Canaanite woman in today's gospel. She must have known. She must have known when she began shouting after Jesus, Jesus, 
that all the odds were stacked against her. Odds were he wouldn't even offer her a single glance. No faithful Jew would. She was lowest of the low. She was on the other side of that grand canyon of a breach between Jews and Canaanites. She represented the people who were so hated they were driven out of the promised land. And yet she steps with faith into that breach out of love for her daughter and because all else has failed. Matthew doesn't tell us how she learned about Jesus. Maybe the local gossips were telling about this itinerant teacher and preacher and healer who had come to Tyre and Sidon unexpectedly. It was outside the promised land after all. Not a place where you would expect a good Jewish rabbi to go. We don't know what motivates her, but she persists even when Jesus ignores her and the disciples urge him to send her away to do what he's supposed to do according to the tradition. And then, at last, when she has his attention, his tapes play, and he immediately offers her nothing more than an insult. Not your mild, meek Jesus. Jesus, the faithful Jew, the son of Nazareth, who has known all his life that the Canaanites are good for nothing. But she doesn't take offense or even bat an eye. She turns the insult immediately around. She doesn't insult him back. She says, Basically, I have a place to stand as well. Even the dogs. Even the dogs. For those of you who study any sociology at all, you know that this is the oldest trick in the book for an oppressed community. It is to co-opt the language of the oppressor and turn it around, and that's precisely what she does. And at that point all of the tapes grind to a halt. All of the cultural programming, all of the years of misunderstanding, everything that drives the breach between them stops. And Jesus, perhaps for the first time, sees a Canaanite as a human being with a stake in the gospel that he has been sent to proclaim. And so he steps into the breach with her. And her daughter is healed instantly. How are you called to step 
into the breach. Our lives are marked with these divisions and chasms between us as individuals and between us as cultures and communities, races, gender, orientation. You just go down the identity politics list. It's all there. But our faith is not lived on the sides of the chasm. Our faith is lived in the breach where we meet. And if we are willing to step into the breach, we will find Jesus standing there with us. And we will become part of God's salvation. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing community welcoming those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You may reach us by phone at 415-388-1907, search for us online, or visit our website at OurSaviorMillValley.org. We wish you God's peace. We hope to greet you in person very soon.